So we're in the 14th chapter of Mark. We didn't make it to the resurrection for today. We did read you know, some passages earlier. Um, but Jesus, this is the last night of Jesus before he uh, is tried and, and goes to the cross. And uh, up to this point, Judas has decided to betray him. He's made arrangements with the chief priest that he would do this for a certain amount of money. Jesus has celebrated his last supper with the disciples, and then uh, they've gone out. Uh, John tells us after supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and he taught them many things that they would only grasp later. And so then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, or the Olive Press, and Jesus is being pressed (laughs) as an olive. Um, He prays, and he endured a great struggle with his soon suffering, um, and he was praying to the Father. It's in 1436. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And so he surrenders himself to the Father's will. There was a spiritual battle going on here, the likes of which none of us will ever see, sweating those drops of blood. Although our battles will seem as intense in our experience. Uh, but there'll be nowhere, um, nothing like what he experienced. At the end of this time, Jesus surrender, Jesus has surrendered to the will of the Father, and he's ready to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him, as we re- read in Hebrews 12 and verse 2. And so in Mark 4, 14:41, it says, this is after he's been praying in the garden, the disciples have been sleeping three times, they fall asleep. He comes the third time in verse 41 and says, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so, uh, verse 43 then says, Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, And now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. So um, Mark says immediately this happened right after Jesus said this. Um, The time has come. There would no longer be any any delay. And he tells them, the men who are with him, Judas tells them, the one whom I kiss. He's the one, you know. He doesn't tell him, look for the guy with the halo. You know, he'll stand out. He didn't glow in the dark, you know. He doesn't glide across the landscape six inches off the ground. He's just a guy there in the garden. And some of them may have seen him before. They may recognize him, but probably a lot of them hadn't. He looked like any other man. If anything, he would have been rather plain looking. In Isaiah 53 and verse 2, it says, 
He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. I don't think there's ever been a Hollywood movie made that featured Jesus where he didn't have, he wasn't extremely handsome and beautiful and, you know, Hallmark Hallmark Channel guy, you know, playing Jesus or something, you know. But he had to be pointed out to them. You know, how are we going to know who he is? And she says, well, I'll, I'll kiss him. Of course, that was a common greeting uh, among people. And so he says, whoever I kiss, that's the guy. Go and get him. And then he comes up to him, says to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. This this is an emphatic form in the original that suggests repeated or demonstrative kissing. So he, he wants to make sure they get the signal. He's got 30 pieces of silver writing on this identification. Yeah. So he kisses Jesus a number of times. Uh, over in Matthew, we're told Jesus' reaction, uh, in addition to what's in Mark here, in Matthew 26, 49, it says, um, Judas immediately went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. So Jesus still uh, giving Judas an opportunity for repentance. He knew why Judas had come, but this gives another opportunity for Judas's conscience to convict him. You know, why have you, friend, why have you come? And we saw in previous studies how what length Jesus went to to demonstrate his love to Judas during this entire period of time. I mean, I probably would have told him, get out of here and maybe, you know, cursed him or something. Hmm? Um, why have you come? He could have, you know, said some other means of identifying him and and Judas could have just taken the money and run, right? But he comes and points out Jesus to them. And so a guy standing by draws his sword and whacks off the high priest here. I'm sure he was aiming for something more substantial, you know. That'd be pretty precision sword work, you know. Like, what is D'Artagnan? Is he one of those three musketeer guys? Well, Luke gives us more detail on this in verse 49. He, um, John tells us that it was Peter who cut off the ear. But Luke says... Uh, Luke 20, 22:49. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, "Lord, shall we strike with the sword?" And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, "Permit even this." And he touched his ear and he healed him. So Luke is the only one that gives us that detail that you know, whatever's off, he puts it back <laughs> and heals him. And once again, Jesus says to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So, you know, he was there in the temple teaching, and they they didn't try to take him. They were afraid to try to take him, actually, is what we see in other passages. And so he says to them, the scriptures must be fulfilled. I've been there, you know, in the temple, uh, everyday teaching. You didn't try to take me there because the scriptures have to be fulfilled that it would occur 
in this way. So Jesus points his apprehenders to the fact that they are fulfilling what had been prophesied about him. So maybe they'll think about it later and realize, hey, he was telling us this was all set. You know, that this was formed. So fulfilled prophecy is one of the most powerful proofs of the authority of Scripture and of the efficacy of the sacrifice that Jesus is about to make. There are many things written centuries ahead of time about this night and the next few days that are being fulfilled, and we'll see numbers of those as we go through here, including this betrayal. And from the first prophecy of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15 to those fulfilled in our day and yet to be fulfilled regarding the last days and His second coming, all will happen just as it has been written. The fact that we see God's Word fulfilled in the past, just as He said, gives us great confidence in those things spoken of that have yet to come to pass, as well as His promises that pertain directly to us. His Word is good, and that gives us the ability to trust in and rely upon His promises. He's told us these things ahead of time so that we might believe and trust in Him. In John 13, uh, that chapter where Jesus does wash their feet, in verse 18, He says, I don't speak concerning all of you, and uh, referring to Judas, I know whom I've chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. There's a he added in there in love. Or, you know, it's an added word in our translation. But the I am is uh, the uh, same word that, or name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush and, and in the when it's translated into Greek. It's ego I me, and that's what Jesus says here, that you may believe that I am. And when the Old Testament was translated into Septuagint, that's the way they translated this phrase. So Jesus repeats that phrase and says, that's me that we're talking about. And then in John 14, verse 27, we see another, another reference to this telling us ahead of time. Uh, he says in verse 27 of John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. This is before all this stuff is going to happen, you know, that is going to trouble their hearts and make them feel afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I, ha I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. And so the purpose of prophecy is that we'll believe, we'll trust in His Word when we see that it's come to pass. His promises include the forgiveness of our sins and our dwelling in His presence forevermore. And so then they all forsake Him and run. Jesus prophesied this in Verse 27 of our chapter, quoting from Zechariah, Jesus says, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And of course, they all protest and say, No, no, you know, Jesus, you're wrong. It ain't going to happen. In spite of their previous assurances, they all turn tail and run at this point. They all take off. Uh, it was necessary for Jesus to suffer alone, for only he could accomplish what had to be done. 
And then in verses 51 and 52, we have this incident. It says, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. This is likely John Mark, the author of our gospel. It's difficult to find any other reason for the inclusion of these verses. We don't find them in other in any of the other gospels. Uh, it's usually supposed that Mark himself, the son of Mary, in whose house they probably had observed the Passover meal, had followed Jesus and the apostles to the garden, as a Greek scholar Robertson. Uh, in Acts 12.12, 12, we're told when he had considered this, this is Peter, having been released from prison, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And it seems that there's a very good possibility this was Mark's house where the uh, Last Supper took place in that upper room, and the apostles continued there for for some time, and there probably was a, a house church in their dwelling place. And so... He's got this sheet thrown around his body. He's, he's probably a young guy. He just follows him out to the garden. And when he begins to run away, a guy grabs the sheet of linen cloth, pulls it off of him. He runs away naked. And naked in Israeli culture was a relative term. That is, could have had on undergarments, you know. Um, you know, when Peter sees Jesus, or John says, that's Jesus on the shore. And Peter sees him and says he took off his outer robe and jumped in. You know, naked into the water and went. So uh, it was a very modest society, you know. And so you get these identifications. And so then when we come to verse 53, it says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And now the chief priest and all the councils thought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and with three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Ego I me. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. So Jesus is led away and he's put on trial. Uh, He first is sent to Annas. There were two guys who were high priests in that day, which, you know, scripturally you couldn't have. You only have one high priest, right? But Annas was the one who was in the line uh, and should have been the official high priest, but he was removed and Caiaphas was put, Caiaphas was put in place by the Romans because, I don't know, he was more compliant maybe, with, but uh, they were related. It was like father-in-law, son-in-law, so it wasn't a big 
big deal. But but Mark doesn't give us the the situation before Annas. There were actually uh, four uh, trials. You had Annas, then to Caiaphas, then to Pilate, then to Herod, and then back to Pilate. And uh, Mark only gives us a couple of these. He gives us Caiaphas and uh, and Pilate. And we see some of the others in the other Gospels. So he comes to Caiaphas' house, and Peter, it says, followed him um, at a distance. I think King James says, from afar. Um, John is also here, as we learn from John and his gospel. He's actually, he knows the high priest family. The high priest family knows John. And it probably was because of the fishing business. And that was a big business they had going. They had employees and partners. And you know, the fish gate was right on the side by the where you would come from, the Sea of Galilee. And they probably knew them from this whole trade, trading business and all. But, However, uh, Peter follows at a distance. Uh, to allegorize this a bit, people often run into problems when they follow Jesus at a distance. You need to follow Jesus closely. And so the chief priests and the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Jesus' trial is, according to uh, Jewish law, illegal. It's illegal to have a trial at night. Hebrew jurisprudence positively forbade the trial of a capital case at night. Jesus was subject to this secret preliminary examination at night, and Jewish law permitted only daylight proceedings. Now, John 18 Verses 12 through 14 says the, de- the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and they led him away to, Ca- to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people rather than that the whole nation should perish. And then in verse 19 John 18 says, The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine, and Jesus answered, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple. Jesus didn't have secret teachings. You know, he taught openly everything he said. Where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by, struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? That was also a violation of the law. So the court illegally proceeded to hold its trial of Jesus before sunrise so that no one would be available to testify on his behalf. Jesus' trial was concluded in one day, but the law in the Mishnah says if a sentence of death is to be pronounced, uh, the criminal charge cannot be concluded before the following day. They were supposed to have a two-day trial, and so if it was a capital case, so at, at the end of the first day, they would have to go home and come back the next day, and this gives them time you know, to think about things, have their conscience uh, enlightened. So... Um, This double day also was done to allow sufficient opportunity for any witnesses in support of the accused to present themselves. 
Uh, Jesus' trial was conducted in private and completed in less than nine hours. Could have been, could have been much shorter. Uh, St. Luke tells us uh, after this there's a daybreak meeting, and we see that also at the beginning of Mark 15, which was evidently intended to give a semblance of legality and regularity to that rule of Hebrew law that required two trials in the case. Even though Jewish law did not permit the trial of a capital offense to begin on a Friday, day before the Sabbath, or on the day before an annual festival day, Jesus was arrested and tried the day before the Sabbath, and that also happened to be the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The indictment against Jesus was illegal because the judges themselves brought up the charge without any prior testimony by witnesses. The Jewish court, or Sanhedrin, was not allowed by law to originate charges. There was no legal basis for Jesus' arrest because no one had presented a formal charge of any crime. He was simply taken. Moreover, those who went with Judas to have Jesus arrested included the priests and the elders. And Mark, he says, they came from the priests and the elders. But in uh, Luke, it mentions that uh, the, some of the priests and elders were with him, with them, uh, and they were to be his judges. So um, that was illegal. They also had those who bribed G- Judas were there. <laughs> so we had some bribery going on. William MacDonald says, On this particular night, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and elders who comprised the Sanhedrin showed an utter disregard for the rules under which they operated. They were not supposed to meet at night or during any of the Jewish feasts. They were not supposed to bribe witnesses to commit perjury. A death verdict was not to be carried out until a night had elapsed. Unless they met in the Hall of Hewn Stone in the temple area, their verdicts were not binding. They're not in the Paul in Hewn Stone, the, day, the daybreak meeting might be there, uh, but they're meeting in Caiaphas' house at this point. In their eagerness to do away with the Lord Jesus, the religious authorities did not hesitate to stoop to breaking their own laws. Their determined efforts produced a group of false witnesses. The entire episode was illegal, but this is not surprising. <laughs> Men will com- compromise all ethics and legalities when they have a crisis that they want to use to their advantage. You may have heard the saying, the saying today is, never let a crisis go to waste. It is the evil heart that justifies the means to the desired end. Yet for many, if not most, the desired end is used to justify the means, however unjust those means might be. Yes. Well, there's a law concerning false witnesses. They bring in these witnesses and uh, they don't agree. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, Then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. 
Your eye shall not pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for for foot for foot. So, uh, if a false witness testified against somebody, whatever they were testifying that the penalty would be, and they were found to be a false witness, then that penalty would be carried out on them, life for life. These people who bearing false witness against Jesus should have been brought up on charges. And so their testimony is, we we uh, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I'll build another made without hands. Uh, misquoting Jesus, if they heard him, they didn't hear him correctly, or they chose to distort what he said. John chapter 2, verse 18, this is after the first cleansing of the temple. The Jews uh, come to him and say, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? What's your authority here? And Jesus answers and says to them, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. And so they're thinking of Herod's temple, you know, and they say it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Wasn't quite finished yet. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So, uh, he could have raised up the other temple in three days if he chose to do so, but he didn't say, I'll, I'll destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. He said, De-, he said, destroy this temple, which is you destroy this temple. Three days I'll raise it up. And so the high priest stands in the midst and he says, do you answer nothing what these men testify against you? They're getting pretty frustrated because their case is at loose ends. It's falling apart. They have no basis for, even in their mock trial, they have no basis for condemning him at this point. They don't have any witnesses that can agree. Um, In Isaiah 53 and verse 7, we're told of the Messiah again. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus only responds when he's put under an oath. Peter gives him as an example example to us in 1 Peter 2, verses 20 through 23. He says, What credit is it if when you are beaten for your fault you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That commitment of ourselves to the righteous judge, whatever injustice we might suffer, is commendable before God. And so he keeps silent until the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And um, the other Gospels give us a, a fuller uh, idea of this uh, statement that the high priest is making. The high priest seeks to obtain a confession from Jesus that he is the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, that is, Son of the Lord. The high priest is not expressing a personal belief in the nature of the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. Uh, The high priest is a Sadducee. He does not believe in angels, spirits, the resurrection, any of those types. He's basically a materialist, and he's interested in power and in staying in power. That's where he's coming from. 
And but Jesus answers his question and says, uh, "I am. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I am." And he goes on to elaborate. But um, in Matthew chapter twenty-six, we see the fuller form of this uh, inquiry. Uh, verse sixty-three says, Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, when an oath was pronounced by the high priest, you were required to answer when you were placed under an oath and required to answer uh, truthfully. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. And he'll go on and say what he says here in Mark. Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 1 is the basis they had for this oath. Um, It says, If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. And so they uh, said in this that um, if the high priest puts you under an oath, then you're required to answer. If If you don't answer, then you're guilty. And so Jesus finally answers because he's been put under this oath. Um, Albert Barnes Barnes explains it this way, I put thee under thy oath before God. This was the usual form of putting an oath among the Jews. It It implies calling God to witness the truth of what was said. The law respecting witnesses also made it a violation of an oath to conceal any part of the truth. And though our Savior might have felt that such a question put in such a manner was very improper or was unlawful, Yet he also knew that to be silent would be construed into a denial of his being the Christ. If he doesn't speak at all in this situation, they say, oh, well, he's, he's saying he's not. The question was probably put in anger. They had utterly failed in their proof. They had no way left to accomplish their purpose of condemning him, but to draw it from his own lips. And it was illegal for a prisoner to be condemned by his own words as well. He had to have witnesses. This cunning question was therefore proposed. The difficulty of the question consisted in this. It's another trap they were trying to lay for him. If he confessed that he was the Son of God, they stood ready to condemn him for blasphemy. If he denied it, they were prepared to condemn him for being an imposter and for deluding the people under the pretense of being the Messiah. And so he's required to answer and he says, yep, you're right, that's who I am. And he goes on, to say, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And we've looked at this before. He's quoting Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. Well, I'll just read it again. I was watching in the night visions. Daniel says, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. So he's saying, you're going to see me coming on the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man. That's me that Daniel's talking about that this passage is referring to. They take this so lightly, what Jesus is saying to them, and they, they know that, He's doing mighty works and different things, and yet, you know, he says this, and that's their opportunity. You know, they don't like, they don't even think about, wow, I wonder if he, what he's saying is true. <laughs> is he really this guy? And of course, he's 
before them in weakness. They've taken him, you know. They've arrested him. They've taken him. They brought him here. They can do with what they, with him, what they want. They suppose, and they can because he will allow them to do so. Doesn't change who he is. So he says, "I'm the I'm the one who's coming." And the high priest tore his clothes and said, "What further need do we have of witnesses? Well, we don't have anything to witness." You heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Now, they they say it's blasphemy for him to say this, but this is blasphemy only if the statement is proven to be untrue. If the statement is true, it's not blasphemy. Blasphemy is defined as slander, detraction, speech injurious to another's good name, impious and reproachful speech injurious to divine majesty. Well, this... You know, what he's saying is not injurious to divine majesty. It would be if I said it, because it would not be true. But it's true, so it's not blasphemy. It's the opposite. It's proven true by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he's talking about Jesus and says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. When he was resurrected from the dead, did did these men believe? I don't know. There could have been some that believed once they saw the proof. And so they began to spit on him, it tells us, and to blindfold him, to beat him, and to say to him, prophesy, and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. And the officers are the temple police. So, you know, this is like, let's see if he's who he claims to be. Pow, you know. They want him to prophesy. And then in verse 66, it says, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. A little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Peter couldn't remain quiet, even hanging around a fire with these people. (laughs) And he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time, the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he, when he thought about it, he wept. So we find the denial of Peter. Peter followed at a distance. He was, I mean, this is courageous, right? He's in danger. You know, he told Jesus, even if everybody stumbles, I won't stumble. I'll die with you before I deny you. And so he follows and he goes into the courtyard. This is as far as his human... Courage will take him. He gets a terrifying threat of the servant girl speaking to him, saying, you were with Jesus of Nazareth. How we can cower in fear at the slightest hint of danger if we're not walking in the Spirit. And he denies it. He says, you're wrong, girl. And the rooster crows. The first crowing doesn't get his attention. Uh, Lane says Peter denied the charge using the formal calm of the 
form the form common in rabbinical law for a formal legal denial. <laughs> He's denying this with a, with a legal term. I neither know nor understand what you are saying. That was, that was the form they used. And Adam Clark says, Yet all this evil sprung from the fear of man. How many denials of Christ and his truth have sprung since from the same cause? The fear of man is a powerful force. It's capable of making the strong and faithful into whimpering cowards. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. We only stand by faith in the power of the spirit, not in our own abilities or strength. In fact, our own abilities and strengths will betray us at the crucial time. Uh, back in verse 38 of Mark 14, Jesus had told them, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knew that he knew their intent was to be true and faithful to him. That was that was their spirit was willing to follow through, but the flesh fights against the spirit, and so the spirit did not prevail. And so the servant girl says it again. This uh, and she points at him to the other people. This is one of them. Uh, and let me see. Okay. And he denies it again. And then this third time, somebody says, "Surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean, and your speech shows it." So they recognize his accent. He had a Galilean accent. Peter misses an opportunity here to stand up for Jesus and confess his own allegiance to him. The fear of man can reduce the most powerful of men to dishonesty for self-preservation. Mark 8.35, Jesus had told them, Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. There's a very strong drive for self-preservation, preservation of this life. Uh, not only, or not long before, Peter and the others had declared in uh, chapter 14, verse 31, he spoke more vehemently, I, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other guys said the same thing. Uh, you know, I don't know where they are at this point, but they didn't follow Peter and John to this place. And he begins to curse and swear. This is not in our modern sense of cursing and swearing. He's not using profanity. He swore that he did not know Jesus and was not with him and in an oath called down a curse upon himself if he was not telling the truth. That's what it means to curse and swear. He's swearing he doesn't know the guy. And if I'm not telling the truth, may I be struck by lightning. You know, calling down a curse from, from upon himself. Of course, it was all for naught since this is a lie. Jesus spoke truth when other went under an oath. Uh, Peter spoke a falsehood, and he placed himself under the oath. He, he swore the oath himself. Um, Vincent says uh, that we should compare Matthew twenty six seventy four. He's a Greek scholar, where it says of Peter, he began to curse and swear, saying, "I do not know the man," and immediately a rooster crowed. And so this word. Uh, in in Matthew means to call down curses on himself if he were not telling the truth. And Vincent says these the words and what we see here in verse 71 are basically 
synonymous. So that's what he was saying. And then the rooster crows a second time. And Peter calls to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. You'll deny me three times when he thought about it. He wept. He's, he's struck now by the horror of what he has done. He's nearly in despair. He's been sifted like wheat. As Jesus said, Satan had desired to have him sift to sift like wheat. And then Jesus has said, when you're restored, strengthen your brethren. But I'm sure Peter has nothing like that in his thoughts at this point. All his weaknesses have been, have been exposed in only a few hours at the most. William MacDonald says it's significant that all four Gospels record Peter's denials. We must all learn the lesson that self-confidence leads to humiliation. We must learn to distrust self and to lean completely on the power of God. You know, we can look ahead and we know that Peter is restored. But how difficult is that? It's very difficult for Peter to accept what Jesus is telling him when they meet on the shore. and He asks him, uh, do you love me? Oh, you know, I like you a lot, Jesus. There's two different Greek words used there. I'll feed my sheep. No, you don't understand. I just like you. And of course, he asked him three times, three denials, three questions for Peter. And the last time, Peter says, do you like me? Bring himself down to what Peter's thinking. And Peter says, you know, you know everything. You know I like you a lot. And Jesus said, I don't know if it's tend my lambs or feed my sheep again. You know, he's got those terms he uses. And Peter's restored and, and we may have failed at various times. There may still be things that hit our conscience, you know, wake up in the middle of the night because there's an attack coming or something that where we've let the Lord down or we may we've even denied him, you know, in a situation. Um, the Lord is always willing to restore those who will come to him who will repent and begin to follow him again. Yeah, I did have I had that in my notes. I don't know where it went. Maybe it's somewhere later. Let's let's read the whole thing here of the now again, verse fifty four. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. And now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them, and a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. And Peter said, Man, I'm not. And then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. His dress might have also given that away. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're saying. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Um, Mark is the one who gives us the most detail on the rooster that crowed twice. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And so he's able to see inward. Jesus is being examined. He turns and looks at Peter. Perfect timing. 
And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now we saw in Mark he went out and wept, but you know, the stronger than that, he went out and wept bitterly. And so we have two guys that uh, betrayed Jesus. One betrayed him, one denied him. And we have one that was restored and one that was not. And that may be somewhere else in my notes or I might have missed it in here somewhere. There's no reason why Judas could not have been restored. He was not. I think that's clear from what the scriptures tell us. There wasn't, you know, Jesus was a friend. Why have you come? And Peter could have gone away and never come back. But he was restored because, you know, what did he say at the end of John 6? Um, we read last week or so, he said, we're... He asked him if they were going away too because the, the great multitude had left Jesus. Uh, and he asked the apostles, are you going away too? And Peter says, where else would we go? For we, you have the words of life. And we've come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 